Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Oh, Brad, what have you done now? Oh, Brad, what have you done Welcome to Back to the Future, the podcast, the only podcast looking back in time with the greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I am Brad Gilmore. Today, I am joined by my friends in time. First, he is my co-host. He is that DJ who cuts the wax. He's on the wheels of steel from Rockefeller Park in New York City, New York. Norman Binford, how you doing, Norm? I, I'm doing great, Brad. And just, again, for the record, none of that is true. <laughs> and, and returning to the show... Um, he was one of the actually he was the very first interview I conducted for this podcast. I think now dating back a year ago, he is the author of the incredible We Don't Need Roads, the making of the Back to the Future trilogy that is now available, by the way, on uh, Audible as an audiobook, And I'm sure it's on other services as well. Mr. Kasim Gaines. Kasim, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be back. You know, Kasim, um, I, I recently discovered your your uh, your uh, book was on audiobook through Audible, and I, I listened to it just you know, and it, it gave me actually a different experience than reading it. And I wanted to know from the author's perspective when uh, I'm assuming that you listened to the audiobook version, were you kind of did you have a kind of a different experience listening to the words that you wrote? I had an incredibly weird experience <laughs> listening to it, actually. And it's funny, you know, I don't know. Um, Ron Butler, who does the narration on the audiobook, is um, a really, a really great, not just a great guy, but he's also a, a great narrator. He was nominated for an award, actually, for his narration of audiobooks this year. And um, it, it was crazy because as the person who wrote it, you feel very attached to it. You feel like it's your baby. But listening back to it, I was able to sort of just enjoy the story of it. I was like, it, it felt foreign because it wasn't in my voice. Um, so no, it was it was really interesting. And you know, enough time has passed 
since I wrote We Don't Need Roads. You know, the thing that people don't always realize, it's kind of like a movie. You write the book, and then it goes to copy editing, and they do the cover, and then they typeset it, and then they print it. and they, So it's it's already, like, you know, four or five months removed from you by the time it's on a shelf. And so when I listened back to it, it was a pretty interesting experience. I felt like I got to actually read the book, you know, quote-unquote, as a reader, not just as the author. It was kind of a cool thing. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, to me, listening to it, it's weird how it has this different experience. So I'm glad that even the guy who wrote the book had had a different uh, outlook on it coming away from it. I mean, and, and if you haven't got it out there, guys, and if you listen to podcasts, it's a great thing to listen to. Uh, we Don't Need Roads, available on Audible. And I'm sure if you Google search it, it's probably everywhere else that you can get an audio book. So um, what was we're here to talk about... If I can ask, what was, what was, what well, was different? Oh, well, you know, it was weird because I think sometimes... When you're when you're reading a book, there there are certain times to where when you're going through chapter and chapter, sometimes some of the information since you're reading it at such a uh, you know I I think I'm a pretty quick reader, so I, I you know I finished the book in a, in a couple of days, and when you're reading, I think that information at such a fast pace, I think at times you don't absorb it all, and I've I've always been more of an auditory learner anyway, like in school and all of that. So when I was listening to the book, for some reason. I absorbed uh, information that I didn't get before, and uh, then things kind of fell more into place for me. So it, it could have just been a personal experience, but listening to it, I was able to absorb every single word of the awesomeness that was your writing. Thank you. I appreciate it. No, that's cool. It's, it's, it is an interesting experience. There were things... Too, I you know you sort of forget like did that make the book did we cut that out did that make and so listening back to it I was kind of like oh yay we made this <laughs> we got it in great good <laughs> yeah no definitely I'm gonna have to get myself a hold of the audio book as well because I am just a massive consumer of audio content uh, Brad always has a good chuckle with me I actually uh, my podcast app allows me to listen to audio at uh, double double speed, which I do all the time, so I can double the amount of content I am taking in on any given day, or commute, or trip oh, to man. the gym. So I am very, very much looking forward to uh, listening to the audio book of this. Awesome! I don't know why that tickles me so much. I don't know why it just makes me laugh that you can do it, you know, double time. So anyway, but we're here to talk about a, a really cool um, topic that actually we had a, a heated conversation, no pun intended, about on last season of Back to the Future podcast. And Norm, you actually talked to Cassine, um, I believe at RetroCon, maybe dating back a year ago, about the same exact um, topic. And this is um, what we're calling American Time Story, the people versus old Biff. Norm, you're, you're my guy, I throw to, you're the analyst, you're the, you're the go-to guy. So why don't you run down for the people what it is we're actually talking about, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, what we're talking about is is old Biff from 2015, who is kind of the the throwback knock around to the to the 1955 Biff, who is just he's just a a caustic, curmudgeonly old man. He's he's rolling around Hill Valley. He has that absolutely amazing cane with a brass fist on top of it that you know he uses to in, inflict physical pain on people and smack them in the head and and call them buttheads and. Where we really first got passionate about this was during our our good cut bad cut episodes because there is a very very pivotal scene in Back to the Future Part Two where 
Old Biff travels back in time, gives his younger self Gray Sports Almanac, allowing the younger self to become the the successful Donald Trump Biff, and opens up the Pleasure Palace and is pumping Hill Valley full of deadly chemicals and marries Lorraine, etc., etc., etc. But once Old Biff returns to his 2015 timeline, and this is the deleted scene, he emerges from the time machine and, in very short order, uh, fades from time, doubles over, and completely vanishes. And I was just so disgusted that this scene was cut from the movie because it arguably is the, the scene in the entire trilogy with, with the most pathos. You know, you have you have Marty playing guitar for his life at the end of Back to the Future Part One, and he's looking at a photograph as he and his siblings are slowly starting to disappear. Well, this this is on screen a character we know. This is not some B-list character. This is Biff Tannen, one of the most important characters in the trilogy, literally being erased from the timeline. And I believe I weighed in. It was the worst, worst decision to cut this scene from Back to the Future Part Two when we were looking at all of the deleted scenes that never made it into the final theatrical cuts. So very, very passionate about this issue, and that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit more tonight. So and so, uh, yeah, I don't mean to cut you off the norm. So, Cassine, do you recall? Um, what, you know, during all of your consumption of what everything that was a part of the Back to the Future trilogy, do you recall seeing this cut scene of old Biff disappear? Yeah, absolutely. I actually recall seeing it back in 1991. I don't know if any of you had the original VHS trilogy box set that had the secrets of the Back to the Future trilogy, which was a documentary hosted by Kirk Cameron. Uh, you can see it on you can see it online. It's on YouTube if you uh, if you didn't have the VHS box set that I had. But they showed that deleted scene then, and you know it's it's funny that um, scenes get deleted all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys are familiar, or you may be familiar with. You know, Little Shop of Horrors used to have a different ending, and they got rid of it because of audience reaction. Um, This is one where there were concerns that audiences just wouldn't get what was going on. But I agree, it's um, a really pivotal scene. You know, it's not like a scene that was cut for time. It was actually... Um, the cut actually added more ambiguity to the story, and so I, I don't know how productive of a cut it was. And I think that's where our conversation came up originally, because the scene in question, and uh, I, I'm sure we'll do a little flashback for the folks um, at, who didn't hear the last episode. I'll put a little clip in there uh, for y'all to kind of hear where the the origins of the argument came from. But to me... When you see him disappear, it is, it's, you know, what Norm alluded to, it's finally that payoff that we didn't see in the first movie that if you do, in fact, go back and change the past, it can alter your future dramatically um, and erase you from existence. And, um, then, you know, I, I started thinking about it and I think it was a bad cut, but I want to pose this question um, to you, Cassine. If they left this scene in, and, and I know we have some notes that we're going to get to, but if they left this scene in, and the audience, for the first time, you know, when they're viewing the movie, they see old Biff disappear. And I'm just trying to put myself in, in Bob Zemeckis's and the editor's shoes. If they see him disappear um, when they're still in the future, which I believe is like the first act of the movie, if they see him disappear then, 
does that tip the hand a little bit too much and let the audience know that the payoff is coming by by Biff being erased from existence? That kind of tells you that something is seriously messed up in Biff's past. Therefore, he is not alive anymore. Therefore, technically, by default, it's like knocking the eight ball in. Marty and Doc win. Do you think that may have been where their mindset was to cut the scene? Like you said, it wasn't for time, really. It's an interesting question, but I think... I don't think so. I don't think that it would have had that impact. And I, I only say that because... You know, Old Biff does return, you know, and, and you do have, you know, it's not like Old Biff returns and walks out of the DeLorean and strolls down the street whistling, you know, back in time or something like that. You know, he, he still comes back and there's, you know, you get a sense that there there's sort of a foreboding, you know, nature to that moment. But also, you get the reveal so quickly after, you know, they come back to the DeLorean, they go back to what is now the alternate 1985 and you get the realization pretty quickly you know they Zemeckis and Gale sort of beat you over the head with the fact that 1985 is different before you get to that chalkboard scene i mean you 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 can tell eight different ways you know when when do we get bars on these windows marty has to jump over the the gate to get into his house the fence to get into his house um you know obviously when he walks in there's a different family living there and it's a black family living there and you know so all these things are are different um but no i don't think that it would have tipped the hand too much i get what you're saying i actually think it would have raised more questions. I don't know if if an audience seeing it for the first time would have said, oh, something really bad happened. I think they would have said, wait, what happened in the past that made old Biff come back and disappear? You know, is the is the past messed up? Is the future messed up? You know, what is it? I actually think there's sort of a missed opportunity there to raise some really good questions that would have gotten answered later on in the movie. Oh, that's actually a fantastic take on it. I didn't think about that. Norm, uh, what, what are your feelings? Uh, it's, it's interesting. Just as, as Cassine is talking, I am, I'm, I'm scrawling notes on my outline, which we can totally deviate from the outline. That was just there in case we, need, in case we needed it. Uh, and Where we're going, we don't need outlines. Yes, that <laughs> again. I, I will drop my my cheap joke that I try to get in every episode. Please excuse this outline, Cassine. It's not written to scale. <laughs> so I, I'm wondering, uh, and I will answer your question with a question, I guess, because my wheels are starting to spin just listening to Cassine's answer. Uh, had Old Biff known of the consequences of his actions, that he would. Uh, disappear from the time stream uh, by returning to 2015, could he have, in theory, stayed in 1955, never returned to 2015, stranding Doc and Marty in the future, and then he just gets to live out the good life while watching his younger self become this massively uh, rich, I guess, entrepreneur, wouldn't be the right word, but Kind of like that. Should Old well, Biff I mean, have? Should he have stayed in 1955, or, or would would he be erased from time the the second that young Biff wins his very first horse race and has a million dollars and you know becomes the luckiest man alive? 
Yeah, I'll touch on that first in the casino code to you, but I think uh, two things to that. One, I don't think, uh, you know, he would have been smart enough. I mean, given the Biff character, I don't know if he's smart enough to, uh, to stay in 1955, old Biff, that is. But secondly, I think you hit the nail on the head there the second time is I don't think him returning to 2015 was the reason he disappeared. I think it was something that young Biff did in this new timeline that uh, kind of uh, ensured that old Biff would not uh, come into existence, uh, if you will. Um, Kasim, are you kind of feeling the same way? Yeah, I, I am. And I, I think also, if old Biff stays in 1955, there's always the risk that he bumps, you know, that he disturbs young Biff's success in some way. You know, maybe he had to get out of there. Or maybe, you know, again, I don't know if he's smart enough to think of it, but he certainly was smart enough to go back and give old Biff a sports almanac, I mean, young Biff a sports almanac, and the warning that one day, you know, a, a young kid and a, or a crazy wild-eyed scientist is going to come asking about the book. Um, you know, I think that he knew that his life would be better in 2015. You know, he wanted to get back to 2015 and sort of see how his life would improve. It's sort of my my take on it. You know, he he obviously was the Biff of 2015. And you have to remember, it's easy because the, the movies are sort of segmented to think about them in isolation. But old Biff is someone who, after age you know, 18, gets sucker punched by the school nerd and then puts his life on a path to be, like, emasculated and, and turned to, like, you know, a turtle wax guy who, you know, like... So, I mean... <laughs> Poor old Biff. Yeah, I mean... Always waxing cars. <laughs> he's, uh, don't you con me. Uh, you know, he's he's spent 60 years of his life being a loser. I think he might have just been eager to go back and see how everything shook out, you know, in 2015 to see how successful he ultimately became. Um, you know, old Biff, you know, how, how much longer could he have lived, you know, just watching young Biff become successful? Which, which, I mean, that's a great point. Um, uh, Norm, what, what do you kind of think about that? Um, it, it's interesting. And one of the, the discussion points I put down in our outline was, you know what was what was old Biff's motivation? Does, does old Biff think that he's going to do this and he's going to arrive back in 2015 and all of a sudden he's going to be fantastically wealthy and he's going to his life is going to have completely changed, or does he does he begin to understand the nature of his sacrifice? Because make no mistake about it, it was a sacrifice for the benefit of his younger self. I, I tend to think that. Uh, Biff being kind of the, the, the selfish guy that he is, he thought he was going to arrive back in 2015 and be, be greeted by this whole new life, which I would say makes his fading from the timeline all the more tragic. Because it's like, it, it's like oh, this will fix everything. Well, it, it sort of did, but not for him. Hey, hey guys, I hate, I hate to stop this conversation. Uh, my computer just froze. Unfortunately. Oh, my, um, okay. I, I don't know, um, how well the, I mean, I, my, my computer actually records Skype automatically. So I, I, I have a, a separate recording of this, if that's what you're concerned about. You know what? Thank you. Um, we might have to operate off of that if that's okay with you. No, it's no problem with me. I, no, it's no problem at all. 
So yeah, okay. I can well, thank you, Cassine. You're, you're a lifesaver. We've got a we've got a backup. Yeah, you are. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. Normally, I run a backup anyway, but for some reason, my computer never it never fails me, and today it, it has. But I'm letting it I'm letting it sit here for a second. So okay, if we can continue, I'm I'm so sorry I didn't mean to cut anyone off. No, I just no, want to no, make sure okay. we're all good here. Okay, well, let, 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 let's pick back up here, and uh, we'll get it here in three, two. Well, you know, I think Norm, it, it is a fantastic point, and the thing about the thing about this scene to me, though, is it, it, it was such an important important scene. And since the first time I saw it, now, Cassine, I didn't have the the ability to have the VHS version of it uh, like you did, but I did see that incredible. Um, Secrets of the Back to the Future documentary thing, but um, incredible is a term a term I use loosely. But uh, when I saw when I saw the scene for the first time, I just knew that it had a, a massive massive impact. And there are so many questions that, that it did arise that did arise from it. Mainly one of which, and I know we've kind of um, we've kind of touched on this, but do you think that had Biff's actions? Because here's the thing: when when that scene comes back in. And we see old Biff um, disappear. We only see old Biff. That's all we see. Now, we see Doc and Marty come back. Doc and Marty are okay, but we do not see how this affects you know, older Marty, uh, Lorraine, George, for that matter, or anyone else, or Marty's kids even. Marty, something's going to be done about your kids. We, had, we didn't even see if that affected them at all. So do you think, Cassine, that the um, that was a question that, that, that Bob's didn't want to, to – for the audience to be thinking was, well, did everyone else disappear? And then they kind of just get off on this diatribe and this, this, this train of thought that's going down the wrong direction. They want you to enjoy what you're seeing next about the alternate 1985, not did everyone else disappear? Was there an apocalyptic event? You know, I never thought about that. That's a really great point that now I'm almost wishing <laughs> they had explored. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the it's a it's a quote from my book. I'm not saying it to plug it, but it's a it's a thing that I always love thinking about. Um, that Leah Thompson said to me, which is that the difference between Eric Stoltz and Michael J. Fox when Eric Stoltz was playing Marty before Michael was brought on, is that Eric was such a, a lofty actor and such a, a heavy actor and serious actor that he would. Um, Back to the Future isn't a film that totally works on all planes. There are little plot holes here and there, and that if you stop and take the movie a little bit seriously, you'll notice those plot holes. But with Michael, his performance was so comedic that it would just sort of keep everything really light and you would laugh and you'd move on to the next scene and you wouldn't stop and think about it. And so I do wonder now in light of what you just said, if you have this moment of old Biff dying, does it add such a level of pathos so early in the movie that it does take the viewer out for a second and cause them to stop and wonder about those other characters? I don't know. Um, You know, it's funny also, it's making me think, of course, they're in Hilldale, and so Hilldale is already a rundown community. And so, you even if 2015 had rippled and become an alternate 2015, where it was rundown, 
maybe you wouldn't have seen it. You know, maybe you wouldn't have seen those effects. And so it's not apparent to Doc and Marty as they're walking through the town that the town looks like a continuation of 1985A because Hilldale already looks so differently from the way it looked in 1985 originally. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind of exactly my point. And uh, I think it does. It sets it up too early. Norm, what do you think about my my new theory? You know, I, I'm coming up with things left and right here. What do you think of my new theory, Norm? Well, my, my head canon is that Doc is, or not Doc. I'm sorry. Old Biff is the first to disappear, just because of his proximity to the the temporal event, the splitting of the timeline. That he's the one that's caused it. So, you know, he's he's kind of like uh, patient alpha. That, I think that's what they call, you know, when there's a, there's an outbreak of a, a disease, you have that first patient, and he's patient alpha. But uh, then as as the timeline continues to split, that that's going to ripple through all of that version of 2015. And, you know, I, I'll go ahead and be the dark one that says, I think that whole reality ceases to exist. I think Biff is the, the first domino... Uh, dropping, and all of those other characters that we saw in 2015, including Griff's uh, super hot blonde skater chick, they're all going to disappear. They're 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 gone. That version of them all will just cease to exist. Well, that, I actually want to jump in for one second because you're bringing up a, a point that has always sort of bothered me about Back to the Future: um, the rules of time travel, as per Back to the Future, but they they're supported by what you're saying. The you know the, I can't quite figure out why Marty's hand would start to disappear first in the first movie, and then presumably the rest of him. Like why a part of him would start to disappear or why like in the photograph, why like his brother's head would disappear. And then like his, like there's, there's a certain lapse in sense that that makes either the whole of you would disappear, not just like your femur or something. And then like, you know, you're, um, so yeah, exactly. So I, while, while part of me is tempted to say, well, time travel, the ripple of time travel would happen sort of instantaneously by sort of the nutty rules of time travel and back to the future. Maybe it would be, it maybe it would start at that location with that person on that block and then start to ripple out over Hilldale and Hill Valley and, you know, the greater California you know, uh, population. It's sort of an interesting thing to to think about how that works. We never really get to see that play out fully in the series, really. No, okay. And yeah, I will yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Norm. Th- throw another question on top of that. Let's just let's just run with this ball towards the goal line for a minute and assume that that is what happens. What happens more quickly? People further from this temporal event geographically being erased or people closer to the geography of the temple or the temporal event in the past disappearing. So my my question is does somebody in 2015 New York City disappear before somebody from 2014 <laughs> Hilldale disappears? 
Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a question I think a smarter man than me needs to answer. So I'll, I'll defer I'll, I'll divert to uh, Cassine on that one. I, I mean I I mean really I don't. The, 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 here's the thing about the rules of Back to the Future is that I think you know a lot of the times and it's a movie. I mean we can't knock them too much on their science because um, it's a movie and a lot of the times it's it's a you know it's the the science is for convenience and for storytelling. So I think to say that it's flawed is is an understatement. It's you know it's created for convenience of the story. So um, I, I would just think that, you know, um, if, it, if the first movie is to be any determining factor on the rules of the film, I would have to say that uh, Hildale would di- disappear slowly. It'd start with all the mailboxes on the street, and then slowly, you know, all the, uh, all the ferns would disappear, and then the doorbells, and then, of course, the rest of the block. What do you think, Cassine? <laughs> God, this is, like, this is honestly, this is so... In the weeds, but I actually I have an answer. I have a theory answer. I don't oh, have man. an actual answer. I have oh, a theory, man. but I but I'm going to actually support my theory, which is oh which here is the we go. Part. Birdman so, hand rub. Let's get into it. So I I'm going to say that I I think that someone in 2014 Hill Valley would dis- or Hilldale would disappear before someone in 2015 and my support for that is that old Biff is able to make it back in the DeLorean so if he is dead or if he disappears you know and he's shot by Lorraine sometime in the 90s or something like that which is what Bob Gale always sort of says is his answer even though it's not really supported by anything in the movie from from what I can tell then there's sort of, you know, you sort of have this man who doesn't exist at all arriving in 2015. Like, he presumably should have been dead, like, you know, 15 years earlier or something like that. And so I think the fact that he even makes it back at all shows that... Well, actually, I don't know. Now I'm starting to like. I feel like I'm talking myself out of my. <laughs> um, no, maybe the fact that he makes it back at all says that someone in 2015 New York would disappear before someone in 20. Yeah, I think that's it. Maybe someone in 2015 New York would disappear before someone in 2014 Hilldale, because. Old Biff is able to make it back, so it seems like the rules of time travel are play a little bit fast and loose with when people disappear in the timeline. I mean, all I want to know is in 2015, A, is it Shonash Ravine or Clayton Ravine or Eastwood Ravine? Can, can we get a judge's ruling on that one? Because I think that's, that's an important thing. To sort of that would be that's a that is actually the most fantastic question that's been raised here. Because we are talking about Back to the Future Part Three this a season on, on the podcast. Now, Cassine, I know you're a busy man, so we can't just go down these diatribes of of, of all these alternate timelines and everything. But I do want to say uh, two more questions for you, and then Norm, I'll let you get anything in you want to ask. But um. First off, speaking of Back to the Future Part 3, um, what is your favorite part of Back to the Future Part 3? I know it's hard, but like, you have a favorite scene, favorite moment, or anything like that? Wow, that is hard. It's tough, because um, I, think, they- I, I think during the course of, of, of me doing this podcast, my position on which movie is my favorite has changed with each movie we focus on. And now Back to the Future yeah. Part 3 is like my favorite one. So uh, I know it's hard, but if you, if you had to talk, if you had to pick one, you know what? I I have there were like two or three moments that popped into my head. So I'm going to give you I'm going to give you 
Uh, three <laughs> or two. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to be selective. Okay. My, I think, and again, this, this literally could change tomorrow. I mean, this is just like what I'm, what I'm feeling right at this moment. I'm thinking one moment is when Doc makes the ice <laughs> in the, in the big machine. Um, just cause it's so, you know, it's so, it's such a Doc move, you know, Marty gets there and he wonders if Doc has sort of retained his Docness in the old West. And yet you realize in that moment, he's the same guy, but my absolute favorite moment i think is the first time you see clara and you don't even see her you know the audience sees her in the purple dress waiting at the train station for someone to pick her up and there's a conversation that's happening in the foreground and unless you've seen the movie you know on a second time you don't even notice that it's her but it totally fits with her story because she takes the horse because no one came to pick her up from the train, which is why Doc meets her, et cetera, et cetera, or, or how she falls into the ravine, you know, in either version of the story. So I think that's sort of it, because kind of like in part two, where you realize all these things were happening in part one that you you didn't notice because you were looking at it from a certain perspective you kind of see in that one little shot that's really really understated that something was going on in part three when you weren't paying attention to and um that's why it leads to what ultimately happens to her oh look at that Look, you you know, it's almost like you should write a book on these movies. Um, let, let's uh, let I know I know. Speaking of, you were telling us before we went on uh, on the air here about a, a project that you've been working on recently that uh, that might be a a, a a topic of interest to a lot of Back to the Future fans and maybe even some Marvel Comics fans. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, so. In uh, March, I released an oral history of the 1986 Howard the Duck film, which is uh, which just came out on Blu-ray. And now I have to say, I, I have a feeling that people that listen to the podcast, because they're smart people and they're hip people and they're 80s people and they get it. But I've always had a, a crazy fascination with Howard the Duck that I can't really explain. And it's not even so much that I think it's a good movie. Well, number one, I, I love Leah Thompson. I mean, anyone who's seen Back to the Future, I'm sure, loves Leah Thompson. And Leah Thompson has, um, you know, never looked better than in, than in Howard the Duck. Oh, man. Um, but but I, I also found it amazing always, even as a kid, that you had George Lucas and Leah Thompson and Tim Robbins and Marvel and a comic book character that was really successful and sent all of this money and a, a interesting soundtrack, a cool soundtrack and special effects. And the movie just came out and flopped, you know, that all of these people spent so much time working on this thing and it just was unsuccessful. And so I'm really proud of, of this oral history. I did, I got, I, I want to say 14 or 15 people associated with the movie. So the director, the producer, um, Holly Robinson, who's in the movie, she participated. Leah Thompson, of course, did George Clinton, like parliament funkadelic, George Clinton co-wrote songs for the movie. I spoke to him oh, um, and they're, they're frank, they're honest. 
just and they you know they talk about what went wrong and what they thought was going right and uh it's it's a must read i have to say it's not just because i wrote it it's um if you have any interest whatsoever in howard the duck or Leah Thompson, or just movies of the 80s. Um, it's it's over at decider.com, and I, I think um, a link will be put in the, the show notes, but um, it's it's worth checking out for sure. Oh man. You know, I you know, I I didn't see Howard the Duck until uh it until maybe last year. Um yeah, I mean I know it's probably incredible for some people who are listening to the show that I didn't check it out sooner, but I didn't watch it until like last year. And there's a great behind the scenes documentary on the on the Blu-ray, I believe, of it. And now I got now I gotta get this oral history. So we're gonna put that link in the show notes. Norm, you got anything more for Kasim before we gotta get him out of here? No, no, uh just well, I, Cassine, I'm I'm slowly but surely going to turn Brad into a comic book guy. So that that's that's my goal. I, we got him reading the Back to the Future comics now. Maybe we'll have to slide a few Howard the Ducks his way too, because Marvel Marvel is putting out a really good Howard the Duck book these days as an assignment. Yeah. But uh, Cassine, no, uh, just again want to thank you for your time. It was it was great to have have your voice on the podcast and and have you you know tumble down the rabbit hole with us because. I mean, literally, you could just layer question on top of question on top of question, and at the end of the day, there are never going to be any definitive answers to these questions, but it is always an absolute rip uh, traveling down that rabbit hole with people who are passionate about the film and know what they're talking about. So again, uh, it's been a, a great privilege to have you on the podcast. This is my favorite kind of podcast interview to do. Honestly, I love when you can just really be geeky about <laughs> about you know about things that you that you love and that you've watched you know all three of us I'm sure I've watched these movies a million times and so to be able to to have a conversation like this is is really good fun so uh just no, I- just, just to leave it though on on one final thing uh and you know all all the casinos uh, information will be in the show notes so y'all can click that uh if you want to get uh the audiobook version of of the we don't need rose making the back to future trilogy but I do want to say definitively, each of us, I'm going to go around the table here, good cut or bad cut, should the old Biff disappearing scene be, should have been left in the movie, yes or no? I say yes. Norm, what do you think? 100% absolute yes, no question. Cassine? Absolutely yes. Put it back in. Put it back in. Let's do it like they did with the Godfather epic. I don't know if y'all have seen that, but they've like taken all three movies and done them in chronological order and put deleted scenes into it. So maybe we should do that. Maybe a Back to the Future fan out there, can y'all do like a super cut where Back to the Future is in chronological order and put all the deleted can, scenes can in you, there? Can you imagine? Can you even imagine that – never travel down that road because that is the road where madness lies. I'm can sure. you imagine sitting in, <laughs> sitting in that writer's room? Uh, yeah, it probably, probably wouldn't be a fun project. But, Cassine, we really do appreciate you coming on the show, and we'll, hopefully we'll have you again uh, in the future. Anytime. Brad Gilmore Show On Demand is meant for entertainment purposes only. It does not mean to infringe on any copyrights of Back to the Future, its characters, its audio clips, or its music. Hope to see you again in the future.